0: I'm probably making too much of this, but I've been thinking about that comment that was made last night. What comment? Well, that I really know how to get myself taken care of.
1: Yeah, so? What, what do you think that meant? Well, Flashman, I think that, that you know, you get invited out to dinner a lot, and you don't always return the favor. What?
0: That is so not true. Come on. Last year, I had everyone over after the Stanley Cup for Ramos Fizzes.
1: I mean, come on. Well, that's not exactly the same thing, Flashman.
2: This seems like a very small town specific problem right here because I don't think I, I I can't recall being invited to a party. But then thinking in the back of my mind, like, oh, I got to I got to actually do a party of my own. But because Sicily is so tight knit, then like every event becomes something that everyone remembers. Uh, what, what do you think? Are, are you in agreement with what's uh with what's going on with Joel today?
0: You might have a point there. I... I am uh, much like Joel have not hosted my friends over to my house. Like since I moved into this new house, which is like, geez, like kind of like maybe two years ago. So (laughs) I haven't hosted anything lately uh, in the past two years. And, you know, it doesn't feel like, you know, I, I definitely get invited to, you know, dinner parties and just hosted events at friends' houses, but it's usually the same couple of people who will, who will host something. It's not like every friend who puts on, it's like, okay, now it's your turn to put on this party. There are like the party houses, you know, like the friends houses where they'll throw a party or host an event or a crawfish boil or, or what have you, you know? So, um, but I mean, we'll get, I guess we can get into it when we get into this plot. Cause there's definitely some etiquette involved in not only hosting, but being a guest. At a party, uh, but, but yeah, I think you're, I think you might have a point. It's such a small town that everyone needs to really pitch in. Uh, I do feel bad though. I do feel guilty that I haven't hosted anything, but <laughs> I, also it's not, it doesn't feel at least in my friend circle, it doesn't feel like now it's your turn. Like it's whose turn is it next, you know? Yeah.
2: Well, like I don't know. Maybe it's because uh, I just don't go to parties. (laughs) Right there, I'm not. I'm not bragging about that, nor nor am I like sad about that. Like a lot of times, you hear people. I guess it's most like an internet thing where they're like, "I don't go to parties." I'm like, "Okay, congratulations." Like (laughs) it just happens to be like a thing right there. But anyway, we're not here to talk about our party-going tendencies. We are here to talk about Northern Exposure, CBS 1990s television series right here. My name is Charles and. And I'm always joined here with my co-host, Lee.
0: My name is Lee. This is the Northern Overexposure podcast. And part of our mission statement, apart from just over analyzing this TV series one episode at a time, is uh, on each episode of the podcast, we like to invite on a friend, acquaintance, just anyone who we can convince to watch an episode uh, of Northern Exposure, preferably fish out of water in the sense that they've never seen this show before or, or ne- sometimes never even heard of it because that's our way of expanding the reach of this show, which is largely, I think, overshadowed or just kind of forgotten. It's never been available for streaming. uh, Didn't really get great DVD release, and there are some third-party Blu-ray releases. We're lucky enough to have the Blu-ray copy to see this high-def 1080. You know something I noticed? I don't think we've brought up on the podcast, because it's not even that big of a deal, but it's something I have noticed, is um, there's some... at least on the Blu-ray versions we have, there's some very strange like hard cuts that happen um, with the opening title music. Uh, I wonder if they just like took the same opening title. Cause it's the same. The opening title music, I believe is the same throughout the entire series. Uh, actually that's not true because in the first season or first few episodes of the series, Elaine Miles isn't credited, I don't think, in the opening titles. Maybe Peg Phillips as well, like some of those characters who haven't really uh, been introduced or come into their own in the series. So they do eventually get added to that opening title, which is, I think for the large part, just repeated every single time. Anyway, about the Blu-rays, is it feels like when the music ends, there's like a hard cut. Like normally you hear the the end of the theme song is like a little drum. Do-doom, doo doom And it kind of has a very little small amount of reverb that rings out on that last drum hit. This Blu-ray copy that we have, Charles, it like has a hard cut, so it seems like they just like cut and paste the opening again and again for each of these uh, restorations on each episode. I don't know if that's true for every Blu-ray copy. Um, I've heard about, I don't know if it's still up on archive.org, but I heard that there was like 1080 versions of Northern Exposure on archive.org, but one of the catches was Uh, I think it would always start with the theme song. So if you got an episode that had material that occurs before the theme song, like the opening gambit, that might not be part of the episode on archive.org. Like it might've cut it out. Um, yeah. Anyway, (laughs) this is like really getting into (laughs) specific ways to watch this show, which is, uh, pretty unattainable. I guess a, if you have a library card, maybe you might get lucky in your library. We'll have a copy of the DVDs. But anyway, that's our podcast. Right? We're talking about this show. That's very <laughs> yeah. Hard, hard making to, hard making to find. this is
2: a, a, a prime prime podcasting material right here. <laughs> Quality podcast. You make one about a television show that is very difficult to watch. Not a lot physically. of uh,
0: not a lot of competition out there though. There are now there are more and more Northern Exposure podcasts. But when we started, I think maybe just, uh, the Alaskan Riviera, which was, I think a few years before we even started, it had ended, but, um, but yeah, not a whole lot of competition, I guess, for this show because there's not, um, not a lot of ways to watch it, but there is a it's kind of a fervent fan base, I guess.
2: Yeah. Well, I was going to say, like, you said there's not a lot of competition, but I say that like, there's more than you think. <laughs> for like a television show (laughs) on this stature. It's like, wait, how
0: many podcasts? People love this this show so much that they want to have a podcast, you know. Uh, But okay, (laughs) we're talking about Northern Exposure, specifically this episode. Today is in the fifth season. It's the 16th episode of the fifth season called Northern Hospitality. It was directed by Oz Scott. And I wanted to look into his credits. It's kind of funny, Oz Scott has Very many credits in television. So he's worked a lot in television. I think he still is working in television. I don't know that he has really feature film credits, but his start was with a short film that he either sold to or made for Disney. It's this film called uh, Mr. Boogity, which I had actually seen the listing on Disney Plus. I was just scrolling through what Disney Plus had because <laughs> I am sharing a friend's account and was like, what, what can I watch on here? It's like, Mr. Boogity, that sounds wild. And then there's like Return of Mr. Boogity, you know, there's like spinoffs. Uh, I haven't seen it, but maybe I'll watch it now, knowing that the director of this episode was the man who created uh, or, you know, first directed Mr. Boogity. Uh, anyway, the writer for this episode, Barbara Hall, who we noted, I think she began as a consulting producer on this season of Northern Exposure, though she's worked on I'll Fly Away, which is another David Chase um, you know, showrun uh, series, I'll Fly Away, created by Joshua Brand and John Falsey as well. Barbara Hall has written uh, a couple episodes in this season already, Rosebud and Baby Blues. Oh, wait, Baby Blues, is that this season or... Yeah, that was episode 11 of this season. I guess that's the one about Shelley uh, and she meets like Mother Nature. That's the that's the part I remember. Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah. Well, finally, for this uh, episode, the air date was February 28th, 1994. Uh, yeah, let's hop right in. Northern Hospitality. What do we got?
2: Yeah, so this one is kind of a strange episode. I don't mean that it's like a bad episode by any regards. It's just that... I, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure, like, the main plot line involving Joel doesn't have, like, a pro, quote-unquote proper resolution. Like, it has a resolution, but I, I wouldn't know if, like, that was, like, it felt like there was something more to it. Am I just wrong in that feeling?
0: Hmm. Trying to remember how it, re- it's been a, a while since I've watched it, but.
2: He gets um, invited.
0: I think. Well, his, I think his, like, ultimate conclusion is him, like uh, him learning this part of the Sicilian culture and being like, like the very last shot of this episode, uh, spoilers is Joel kind of giving a knowing like nod or like, he's like, he gets it, you know, to, to, right. That's about it. I I just,
2: it's like the cycle is complete. Like he, he realizes where he is, which I guess is a resolution right there. (laughs) I thought, I just thought it was going to be a more dynamic one right there. Right. Um, I feel you, but uh, I, it didn't really necessarily spoil me on it. But now that we're talking about it, I guess we can talk about the very first scene, which is going mm-hmm. to be featuring that. Adam is throwing a party. Uh, lots of people are invited. Joel, Maggie, Ed, uh, the mayor of Sicily. Yeah. You don't, <laughs> I thought you don't she see was, her a
0: lot. I thought she was gone forever after she she's literally appeared only once, and it was in the episode where she was elected back in like the third season, Democracy in America. I believe that was the third season. And uh, yeah. And here she is now, but unfortunately, she really does nothing in this episode. She's just like, and she's in is one she, other scene, but
2: she's in that town hall scene with Chris, and she basically, is, I, just I guess,
0: opens the floor for discussion and then steps aside. Yeah.
2: yeah, I, I wonder if they're gonna use her more now that they're like we're reintroduced with their character right there, but yeah. Anyway. What's happening in the scene is that, like, Adam has thrown his great party. Everyone's having a wonderful time. And Adam asks if anyone else wants more, I want to say, wine, some more drinks, Mm -hmm. basically. And because Joel isn't going to be the one driving, Maggie is. He decides to take him up on his offer. And Adam kind of gives, like, a jab into Joel, saying, like, oh, well, like, you always got someone taking care of you. It's basically, like, insinuating that he's a little bit of a freeloader.
0: Yeah. Like a moocher, freeloader. It's like you, you've always got, I forget what, what he actually says, like the exact wording, but what you just said, it's like, you have got someone taking care of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're just getting by, getting by on others' expenses, perhaps something like that. We also learn in this scene that Maurice hurt his leg or something because he's not in this episode. They kind of reference it a couple times, but Maurice is not here. Uh, they just write him out of the episode. He hurt his leg. I wonder if, We'll see him in a cast next episode, or it's probably just a, a way to quickly write in that, okay, Maurice is not going to be here. And, oh, you know what? <laughs> this is something we talked about a little bit on our last episode of the podcast, but in the last episode, no, sorry, in, um, in two, two episodes prior to this, A Bolt from the Blue, there's a deleted scene in which Adam is like preparing, because uh, he's got to make a fireworks show for Maurice And um, there's a deleted scene where Adam is like extinguishing the smoldering ashes of a burnt down building. And I don't know if that was supposed to be his shack uh, that he accidentally burnt down. But if that's the case, it's definitely incongruous with this scene because I believe they're having the meal. Where are they having the meal? I thought that, I think this is maybe Adam's shack.
2: I don't think so. Because we we see the shack in the daytime and I don't even (laughs) think it has walls like that. It looks
0: a little fancier. It's unclear where this is. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure where they are. He is hosting them. Maybe it's maybe he's got a whole new shack. Maybe his he, he burnt down his old shack. He built something new. I haven't really been keeping tabs on that set. Like, you know, definitely when we saw it in A Bolt from the Blue, it seemed different than like what we might've seen in the very, in his introduction episode, which is like all the way in season one, kind of felt like a different set, but I don't know, maybe they recycled it. Anyway, this definitely feels different, right?
2: Yeah, it's definitely not the same, I, I would guess right there. It's probably more like Adam cooked the food and uh, all the accoutrements are at somebody else's place. I don't think it's Maggie's. Possibility <laughs> it's the
0: place? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. They don't seem to mention it uh, in any of the dialogue, yeah. But it doesn't really matter. We got the setup here in that first opening scene. And then... Yeah, I don't know. Should we just keep going down Joel's plot line? Yeah, why not? So the next scene is where we pulled our opening soundbite. It's like later, probably the day after, Joel bumps into Maggie in Ruthann's store. And as you heard in the soundbite, he asks her, like, is that really a problem? Like, do people really think that about myself? And we talked about this. Yeah, it, it turns out, <laughs> at least in Sicily, culturally, uh, you've got to do your own fair share of hosting they use some yiddish words here it's kind of funny because maggie calls says of joel's like isn't that like um like a schnorver or something i forget like the whole exchange but they you know maggie is confused about the yiddish term for what you would call basically like a freeloader and joel's really offended Because she maybe said something even worse than what she's trying to imply. She just doesn't understand Yiddish.
2: Yeah. uh, I think that's something that sets him off right there. Because it gives him like a view that like... Because it presents him with a view that he's not comfortable with. So he's saying like, all right, well, now I need to host the party. Yeah. Strangely, though, like if I was in his shoes... I don't know, I feel like it's such a such a dead end because if you host a party now, everyone's going to say, you're only doing it because you got called out. So this is not going to feel sincere <laughs> or yeah. genuine, which I guess was already a factor going into their minds when they go into the party, they just didn't bring it up.
0: Yeah, well, he's got to take a first step at some point. This first party is destined to fail, as we can see, as we'll get to throughout, as we're going through this plot line, every step of the way, you know, it's 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 not adding up like this is going to be a good party. And uh, I guess we can talk about it more in depth, but my whole feeling with this storyline was just like, you know, let Joel tremendously fail. Just let him fail. That's like the best way for him to learn. And as you said, like this first party that he's hosting probably doesn't even have, even before the, the guests sit down at the table, they probably already have their own uh, preconceived ideas of like, okay, he's only doing this to make sure... That he he's he checks out in the group, um, but hey, he's got to start somewhere, I guess.
2: So the next scene with Joel is him in his office with Marilyn. He's trying to devise a list about all the people he needs to invite. He's got fourteen people on there. Uh, it's it got wide ranging. You know, it's got Walt in there to repay him back for uh, one of his dinners. It's got like an old professor <laughs> that used to write him recommendations, and Marilyn. Decides to say, like, oh, you know, why don't you invite my mom and dad on today? They uh, hosted you at dinner once. And Joel's like, oh, you know, you're right, you're right. So it becomes 16 people. <laughs> but then Joel does something which I didn't realize was like a super bad thing but I, I, initially, I guess. And it's um, he asked Marilyn if she could um, bring anything because Marilyn offers. She says, like,
0: well, does she offer? Do you remember? Yeah. That's the, that's the idea is like, she says, uh, can I, you want me to bring anything? And Joel is like, yes, you make those like amazing dinner rolls. That would be great if you could bring them. And she's like, well, I have to let them rise three times. So like, it takes a while to make, like, I'd have to start them first thing in the morning. And he's like, oh yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for your sacrifice. You know?
2: <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, you're right. I, I didn't know if like Joel for the first time he posted her. right there, yeah. but yeah, this is his, uh, apparently his first strike.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think I understand that as like a social faux pas, like don't ask, if you're inviting someone over for a dinner party, don't ask them to bring something. But if I'm ever invited to a dinner party or a crawfish boil or something, I'll ask like, hey, what can I bring? Like, and usually it'll be like, yeah, bring like a, a six pack of beer, bring some ice uh, more recently, some of my friends are just like, no, you're good. Don't bring anything. But then I actually feel bad because it's like, no, I, like I need to contribute some way. So, I mean, I'm with Marilyn. Like I wouldn't offer to make dinner rolls that I have to start like at the crack of dawn to get finished. But I would like to contribute, you know, and show my, show my thanks. But I guess I, I totally also understand. And this is probably more the culture uh, definitely here. It's different in different social groups. But... And Sicily, very much frowned upon to invite someone over for dinner, then ask them to bring, to, you know, to prepare things for your dinner.
2: Right. And we're going to see this play out in the next scene, which is where Joel, Maggie, and Ed have finished shopping and they're bringing the groceries inside Joel's place. And Ed is about to leave and he says, like, oh, do you want anything? Like, do you want me to bring anything, Joel? And Joel says, like, oh, uh, beer, like an ice. Like if you could bring that stuff and Ed kind of like looks at him, he's like, all right, yeah, okay, that's (laughs) fine. So that is where we learn that like Joel is committing some sort of faux pas right here. And it's also where we learn that he's sort of cheapening out on the ingredients Mm -hmm. because there's like, he's making some sort of a fancy chicken dish. And it requires all sorts of stuff. Uh, And instead of following all the ingredients, he kind of like gets like the canned variety of the mushrooms. He doesn't get like the parsley. Uh, It's just like a couple of stuff that's missing. So he doesn't really have his heart into it.
0: Yeah. Maggie definitely calls him out on the canned mushrooms. And she's the one who explains to Joel, finally, you're not supposed to ask people to bring anything. Uh, So it's starting to come through. I, I do like what Joel says here, though. He says we don't have to be so uptight about this. It'll just be fun, you know? We'll have some good food and wine and company. Uh, He's, I think that's probably the best mindset to have, but I just think he's massively underestimating this undertaking. Like he already knows uh, from that prior scene, he's like, wow, I got to cook for 16 people. This is like going to be so expensive. And just, uh, I I don't think he realizes how long it's going to take to do that. Not just the uh, financial cost but how much time it takes to prepare this. Um, I think it's a good philosophy that Joel has there, but only the best hosts can actually do that. You gotta have a little bit, I think there is some skill there, have some skill uh, to really be able to uh, kind of improvise and and play around with it, but it does take a lot of work uh, to make this happen. So it's not gonna be just a chill time, at least not for Joel on his first time hosting.
2: Right. One interesting thing that I noted was that whenever they're unloading the groceries, Joel says, hey, did you get enough wine? (laughs) And in the last scene with Joel and Marilyn, Marilyn says that you have to let it rise three times. You have to let the bread rise three times. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, is this all like a Catholic reference? (laughs) So like, is this a, a reference to the Last Supper with, you know, Jesus, bread, wine, all of that.
0: I don't know. I mean, there's bread and wine at dinner all the time, but uh sh- sure. <laughs> I guess uh, just, I, when you say rise three times, I'm not Catholic, but is that something that Jesus did? Like, did he die and get resurrected? It was on the but third not, day. On the third day. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: And the, so tr- that's the Trinity, why. I, sure. Or,
2: oh yeah, that too. But I'm not I mean, either. I, I don't
0: see, <laughs> I see how we can make a connection. I don't see how that enriches this plot like we like you said this plot doesn't really have much of a deeper meaning i don't know maybe we'll uncover it though as we talk about it but
2: it feels like it doesn't <laughs> that was a, that was the something i had in my notes when i was like uh is <laughs> there taking note of that
0: yeah Something going on there. Um.
2: (laughs) Anyway, so the next scene, which I guess they needed, I kind of wish they would have cut out some of this stuff, Mm. but is trying to prepare for the dinner party and he's massively overwhelmed. He needs Maggie's help for a lot of the things. He has not prepared at all. He has not vacuumed the place. He has not set the table. He's not even prepared cooking the dishes because you have to prep first Mm -hmm. and then you can cook. So even at a cooking time, it's probably one hour. It takes like I don't know, like two hours to like get everything settled in. Yeah, it's like one of those universal rules for cooking.
0: The mise en place or whatever, like getting it all ready.
2: <laughs> right, and he's not even following the ingredients because he doesn't want to clarify the butter.
0: <laughs> yeah, which he gets docked on by Adam later, <laughs> which is funny. Can you truly taste a difference on that? Um, you know, I don't. I don't know. Honestly, I'm not like a chef, but I do know that like butter does different things when it's clarified. If I'm not mistaken, clarified butter will have a higher smoke point, so less likely to burn. So you would be able to taste burnt butter um, if it's clarified. And if, if I'm right about this, if it's clarified and has a higher smoke point, then you could probably cook at higher temperatures without getting a burnt taste. That's my best guess. Uh, yeah, I, I, but I, I don't know how much you could really taste it. If I'm wrong, then I really don't know what uh, what clarified butter would taste like differently. But um, it definitely affects the cooking process, I'm sure. And I guess that all will down the road lead to the taste. So yeah, but I mean, obviously it's it's Adam who has like the more sophisticated palate, I guess, who's the one who who points it out later. Um, in this scene, Fleischman complaining about the difficulty of the task here. He says, I tell you, a peritoneal lavage is easier than this. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds like a difficult uh, medical procedure. It's <laughs> comparing to um, to clarify or whatever he's preparing here.
2: Right. The scene ends with him taking the can of mushrooms and he's having Maggie to smell around to see if it's still fresh. <laughs> Uh, the reasoning why is because I was a little bit lost on this, but I'm pretty sure I'm correct is that you can get some sort of disease whenever the canned mushrooms stay in there too long. Mm. Stephanopoulos is, uh, Mm. is the one that they have.
0: Okay. Does he mention that one in this episode or? He does. Okay, cool.
2: Yeah. So like, I don't know, I I didn't do any research on that, but is that true? (laughs) What?
0: That you can smell?
2: No, like the d- disease can form in canned mushrooms.
0: Um, I don't know if it's like canned mushrooms or canned anything. You know, canned food will go bad. So I don't know. There was, you know, it's funny. There was a, another episode of Northern Exposure where I don't remember what episode it was, but Chris was doing his mea culpa segment on air, which I think only happened in that one episode. Uh, Maybe it happens again. Anyway, a caller calls in and says that she made that three bean salad, which we made on the uh, Patreon, Charles. We made that recipe from the Northern Exposure cookbook. Uh, His caller calls in and said she made a three bean salad and some of the canned beans kind of smelled a little off and she ended up like poisoning some of her uh, friends with with that dish.
2: Continuing down this plot line, we have Joel still being overwhelmed with all of the work, but then one of the guests decides to come in, his old professor. Uh, he is, I'm pretty sure we've never heard of this person, right? This is an entirely new
0: character? Yeah, I don't think we, I don't think he's been referenced before. Uh, Howard Mink, Professor Mink. What does he say earlier on? Uh, Cause he's, so Howard Mink, this guy is the first to arrive Uh, But you said, uh, I can't remember, you you just said it's an old professor maybe that he had? It was, I don't know. Like,
2: (laughs) I don't think it's made very clear.
0: It's like someone uh, he would be acquainted with, I think not just because of his medical practice in Alaska, but I do think it dates back to maybe a New York connection, maybe a friend of a friend, or maybe it was his professor. Yeah.
2: This is the same one that wrote him the recommendations, right?
0: Oh, maybe that's it. That's what, that's what is uh, in that. Previous scene, Joel says, like, this is the guy who wrote my recommendations, maybe?
2: Yeah, okay. I was making sure it was the same character right there because um, <laughs> they never bring it up again. But anyway, he gets there early uh, and there's more bickering. There's more uh, scenes of Joel being inept and not planning this place because he's drinking the wine as well. I, I'm not getting more out of this scene than what was already being shown in the previous scene other than the fact that the professor came early.
0: It's ramping up. Yeah. It's just the same stuff. I think just ramping up. Uh, my notes for this scene is uh, this, the guy they cast as Howard Mink is the most anxious looking man imaginable, you know? <laughs> so he gets there early. And as you said, there's still Joel and Maggie are still bickering because the food is like nowhere near ready. I think he's an hour, maybe even two hours early or something. Cause he, um, he wanted to drive in early from out of town uh, and that's yeah, really unfortunate cause this is someone that I imagine Joel would want to sit down and talk to, but he really can't do that right now. And as you said, I think the scene maybe ends with Joel just straight chugging from the bottle wine, you know, <laughs> he's only got, <laughs> I think, two bottles of wine. Is that right? Yeah. That he is only has such two bottles. Massive, okay. Maybe they don't drink as much up there, but I imagine they do. They, they, you know, I've seen the brick, <sighs> uh, that is such a massively low amount, like two people. On, like, a uh, yeah, so I'm not gonna go get into how much someone should drink, that's not a good idea, but um, <laughs> it's not enough, like, it's not enough wine, I don't think.
2: Yeah, if you think about it, there's supposed to be 16 people coming here. Oh my gosh, so yeah. eight people per 16, bottle. Yeah, that's like, no,
0: can't you, you really? You would uh, how many glasses of wine are in a bottle? Is it like four to five? You would say,
2: uh, let me see, I bet someone's got this.
0: <laughs> I mean, I know your glass of wine is different depending on your your uh, taste and desire for how much wine you'd like. but
2: So a standard bottle of wine is 750 milliliters right. or 25 fluid ounces, and it will net you about five glasses of wine.
0: Yeah. so and for taller pours, maybe four, I'd, I'd say three glasses per a bottle of wine is like way, way too much maybe. Or I don't know. I'm not even <laughs> going to shame because I've probably had that much before. Uh But it's evident that this is not. But still, that's only 10 glasses. Yeah. Yeah. For 16 is people. St-
2: nowhere nowhere even close so yeah we're gonna see this play out in the next scene though because they're finally having the dinner party Uh, not everybody can arrive which makes Joel angry because he's only throwing this party to get this monkey off his back and if people (laughs) don't show up then his party he still has to throw
0: another party yeah (laughs)
2: yeah Maggie is right in what she said in the previous scene where she's saying like why are you even throwing this party at all So you can tell that Joel is only doing this for like an obligation of sorts. And you can see this all fall apart. They don't have enough wine. The asparagus was forgotten to be cooked. The chicken is only adequate. Um, They're not even having a lively conversation. It's just not a very fun
0: party. Sorry, I just thought about this. Uh, um, The worst dinner party I've ever been to. Uh, I mean, that, that, that happens, that's happened before where you forget to cook something or just, you don't get to cooking that cause there's just not enough time. But, <laughs> uh, I was Howard Mink before at like my friend's dinner party where I got there on time. But, you know, obviously that's, I knew I would be early if I got there on time, just wanted to hang out and talk with him before everyone else showed up. Cause I probably wouldn't know a lot of people who would arrive, kind of get there early for some FaceTime. And he was just starting to cook for the party. And I think he imagined it would be something where it could be more like, hang out and we'll cook together dinner party, which is great. Those are always really fun. But the dishes that we had were like, I don't know, it was just so much work. Like It was fun because there is, was, it wasn't just me at the start. It was me and our small group of friends, like close group of friends in the kitchen working together. So we did have fun cooking, but we ended up just like cooking the whole night and bringing out food as people were coming in. So I guess in that sense, I kind of got to feel what it's like to host. But as a guest. <laughs>
2: <laughs> how how many people came to that party?
0: uh Hmm. I don't know. I would probably wager not more than 12. But yeah, there's probably like four of us in the kitchen working. So third of us in the kitchen, the other two thirds hanging out. Uh, but we were, I think ultimately we all had fun. It was just obviously a lot of work. Uh, so I've been in that situation (laughs) where Joel has been in, I guess.
2: I don't even think I've ever really been to like that type of dinner party
0: where you're like cooking Um, and preparing for people.
2: Yeah. Like that specific type of dinner party right there. I don't know what that reflects into me as a as an individual, but I have been to like, the, I, I still remember this as a very particular case. This is kind of like tangentially related, but I, I once showed up as, uh, I was not like in the, what is that party called? Whenever they're, they're involved with the wedding. I'm terrible. The um, wedding the best, party. Yeah. The wedding party. Like yeah. the
0: best man, but, um, bridesmaids yeah yeah,
2: yeah I, I my friend was but i wasn't but like i was hitching a ride with them so i was like all right whatever we'll just sh- i'll just show up there and i'll just like drink a beer or something just chill out <laughs> um they uh the wedding was at the groom's family's house like their family house it was this really big place it could accommodate a lot of people uh they put us to work <laughs> <laughs> like with like setting up the chairs <laughs> and doing the decorations i was like what? <laughs> like, you pay people <laughs> for this. You don't... Wh- I'm not even part of the wedding party. Why are you doing this? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, I had to... I mean, I'm, I'm not like... It wasn't hard. Yeah. No, I'm not like complaining about any of that. It was just unusual. And like, they come from a, a family of means. I know they can afford <laughs> this. They weren't poor.
0: <laughs> I mean, good Lord. There we feel like Ed or Marilyn when like, we're asked to, to bring something to the party, you know, and it's like, I you preferred can't that say much no. more, Though you can't say no, but it's like, oh yeah, you would have preferred I, that.
2: Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll bring like, a, you know, I, I don't even know what you could bring in a wedding. What can you, what can you realistically bring that would cover the entire <laughs> wedding party? Like, you bring, you're going to bring a six pack? Like really? Going to cover three it people? It all adds
0: up. It all adds up.
1: Uh,
2: <laughs> no, I was just saying. like, I didn't want to spend, I want to spend, I want to say at least spend like four hours setting wow. up. That was. <laughs>
0: Yikes. Uh, well, let's get back to this scene because uh, there is a bite I actually wanted to play uh, when it's all going south and Joel asks about, you know, how's how's the chicken? How's everything taste? And everyone's just very quiet. They're silently not having a great time. Uh, but here's a little sound bite I've got. I think they're talking about the wine with Adam.
1: Ed, I, I'll take a splash more of that wine. Yeah, the wine passes mustard, doesn't it? Well, uh, we tend to look to Australia for uh, surfing pants, ACDC videos, and as a CETO partner, Cabernet Sauvignon, we, we like to leave to civilization. I like it better than most Californias. Hit me again. Well, at least
0: Walt is having a good time there. Uh, but I love the, you know, we, we tend to, you know, look, look to that region for surfing pants, not our Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, I thought it was part of this bite, but it must be a later moment in the scene when Joel is talking about the chicken. And, um, I think it's cool that Adam is not, um, exploding here, but it's rather that Joel is prompting him. And so Adam has to tell the truth. He's like, you know, I'll just Flat out say it if you want to know. The chicken was mediocre, uh, and he even says like, "Try clarifying the butter next time." <laughs> you know, obviously he didn't know what happened in the kitchen between Joel and Maggie, but it makes a difference. It turns out,
2: right? Isn't there a wine that has like a kangaroo at, <laughs> at the front of it? It's like super cheap too.
0: Ah, uh, it's not barefoot, is it? Let's see. No, barefoot is like a foot. Uh, what's the kangaroo wine? Let's look it up.
2: Guarantee you just type it in. Yeah, yeah. First And that hit. is, um, I'm assuming it's Yellowtail. Australian
0: wine, right? Yellowtail. Uh,
2: let's find out.
0: <laughs> Google, is Yellowtail real wine? Yellowtail is Australian wine made for American drinkers. What does that
2: mean? <laughs> 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 it's like the Outback.
0: <laughs> so it is Australian. Yeah, it makes sense. They got the kangaroo there. Actually, sorry. I saw the Wikipedia link. I couldn't resist. Let me just.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's based in... Um, New South Wales, and it's pretty old, actually. The
0: very bottom of the Yellowtail Wikipedia page is a um, subheading called Fraud. Various local shops around Birmingham, England, were found to be selling fraudulent Yellowtail in 2021, following complaints by a presumably discerning buyer. (laughs) Who's going to notice? Also, why would you fake... (laughs) You know, typically Isn't, you fake like a uh, Modigliani or something like very valuable. Right. You're like faking. faking Isn't Yellow yellowtail like four four dollars or something? <laughs> Sub ten dollars. It says I don't know in this current economy how much it costs.
2: How much but. that could cost right there? <laughs>
0: um, yeah, that's funny. That's a good. That's a good little moment. And again, I really like how it's it's very deftly handled. It's not like Adam. It could have been easy just to write Adam like ridiculing Joel, but it's almost as if Joel kind of forces it out of Adam. He's like, I don't want to, I don't want to make this hard on you, but you asked. So here we go.
2: (laughs) Right. So the aftermath of the scene is Joel waking up with a wide assortment of plates around him. Uh, He didn't get to the dishes afterwards. Mm. I'm surprised that even with the disaster of a party, no one stuck around to help him with the dishes.
0: Yeah. I guess that's generally, well, here's the thing. In Sicily... I guess you can't ask your guests to help you do the dishes or, you know, their guests. If you're invited to a dinner party, you should do nothing, which is fine. I think that's a great, um, that's a very nice comfortable luxury to have. But if I'm going to a friend's house, I think like you were saying, Charles, like you want to bring a six pack of beer, you want to do something to help. So, um, and, and obviously if they ask you, even if that's a faux pas, it's like, can't really say no, as we've learned, like both Marilyn and Ed, oblige joel to his uh, requests
2: right i think that i would like to be put on that <laughs> no, i don't mind like yeah. that's not uh, that's a good way to detox you know get down with it but <laughs> anyway uh this is where maggie also comes in and helps him out she's kind of helping him with the dishes that are still uh riddled with the chicken and everything and she really digs into him about the mushrooms and joel right. says like come on like stephan would have and Joel says, come on, Staphylococcus.
0: Staphylococcus. I'm pretty close. I'm so try terrible try with this. I'm,
2: I'm so terrible with this. I, I can never make it as a doctor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, he's
2: saying that disease would have manifested within six hours. All right. So Joel is like mostly concerned with the after effects of the cheap methods. He's saying like, you know, it's fine that I used the canned mushrooms right there. Um, y- y'all would be puking. That's just a matter of fact right here. So he's basically trying to say, like, I'm. it, it wasn't as bad as y'all think it was, and there was not going to be any aftermath, any repercussions to me throwing this party.
0: Yeah, he's like, if you were going to get food poisoning, you would already be sick. Though it turns out that's not the case because apparently there are lots of different types of, uh, food illness, um, foodborne illness or whatever. And it's like, it's not until like a day or two after when like he can rule out pretty much every, you know, mostly every type of illness that he could have, you know, poisoned his guests with. But actually in this first scene, when Maggie calls him out about the, the, the canned mushrooms, he says, you honestly think I would take the chance of poisoning my friends? But I think as soon as he says that he realizes that, he may have just poisoned his friends, because the rest of the episode from here is he's going around uh, like uh, the next scene. So we can go to the next scene. Joel goes to visit Adam, and he starts off with uh, sort of a misdirect. He's like, "Did did um did you take my scarf uh from my house last night? Like, do you have it?" But the real reason why Joel is here is not not because of the scarf. He's just checking to see if Adam is sick. If he poisoned Adam. Also, Adam was like half asleep, I think, because like he's like waking up and Joel's like, you know, have you heard from anyone else? Is anyone else sick? And Adam's like, I've spoken to no one. He literally was just asleep. Like you just woke him up. So,
2: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like typical Adam fashion where he's just berating Joel. And honestly, I thought Joel was just being polite in his mannerisms. But Adam calls him out and says like, oh, you're just acting coy. Like you're just you're trying to do this chess move. You're maneuvering me into saying what you want me to say, and it's manipulative, I'll give you that. <laughs> but it, it's obvious to Joel that he's concerned with this. So I think there's only like two ways that Joel can ask the question that he wants, which is he outright asks, or he goes into these social faux pas of maneuvering in this direction where maybe both parties or at least the other party kind of knows where (laughs) the direction is going to, but you can have like a suspension of disbelief and be like, ah, maybe it naturally like organically the conversation went that way.
0: I don't know if I would call that, that example, a, a faux pas. I think in most cases, like broaching a difficult subject, usually the social thing to do is to like, try to find a way to ease into it but obviously here if the other party is well aware they can either go along with that and be like okay we're going to talk around it for a bit or that could also as you see very much offend them but I think Joel's trying to like you know lessen the blow but I guess guess you could also say that's a bit uh, sneaky or not good
2: I don't think Joel's committing anything wrong right here. I I, I believe that like Adam, as for usual, <laughs> is going like way overboard because I think that this is the proper way or like, I don't know, maybe not like the proper way, but it's a way for you to navigate toward this. Maybe you could argue and be like, oh, no, just put your, you know, you just have too much pride to swallow yeah. it and just straight up ass. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that like maybe that makes the other person uncomfortable, though, yeah. if you're mm-hmm. that straightforward.
0: Yeah. It's a bit awkward. Uh, it's an awkward scenario. Is it in this scene or in a later one when um, I feel like Joel tells Adam, maybe he tells someone else, but he's like, hey, thanks for being a good guest.
2: Yeah, it was this one.
0: Okay, yeah. So that's that's pretty nice.
2: Yeah. And Adam kind of shoes him off and says like, uh, you know what? Just go ask if anyone else has food poisoning. I don't <laughs> care. And it turns out that maybe someone does, which... Uh, it might be Ed because he's in Joel's office. He's freaking out. He's puking. He's uh, having all these symptoms. And Joel checks him out and looks at him and says, like, wait a second. Hang on. Like, you have, like, uh, you're boiling, actually. So that <laughs> must mean that you just have a stomach flu. You don't have food poisoning.
0: It's funny that Joel is, like, very relieved. He's like, oh, thank God. It's just the stomach flu. And as soon as he says that, Ed is like, you know, in so much pain, like, uh, he says like, you know, it's just 48 hours of vomiting and diarrhea and body ache. That's it. You're fine. And Ed is like, Oh no, (laughs) he like rushes out of the room, I guess, to go vomit or diarrhea or whatever.
2: I think it's like really coincidental that we're watching this episode and I I don't know if you know this, but like, apparently there is a strain of the norovirus. Hmm. What's that? Uh, it's a terrible, terrible, uh, stomach bug. Oof. It will cause you to puke and just basically be useless for like 48 <laughs> hours. And it was spreading in
0: Canada. Oh, so near uh, near Sicily, perhaps.
2: But also like Canada is also like a large, you know, oh, yeah. part of this plot line.
0: That's true. Yes. We'll get to um, Holling and uh, Shelley who have, uh, were you saying that the norovirus now? is uh, spreading or was that at the time or what were you trying to say?
2: Like right now, like in current day.
0: Well, let's not, let's not get it, Charles. How do we stay away from norovirus? Just don't, is it foodborne? I, I don't, like it helps when
2: you wash your hands, but like from the the way I was reading it was like almost like it's inescapable. Like it's like if you if you go to the supermarket and someone's got it, you're pretty much like if you touch the doorknob that they touched or uh, they had their spit or anything, it, it's you know yeah. you, you're pretty much done. It's because it's super contagious.
0: Yeah, uh, CDC says wash your hands often, rinse fruit and vegetables, cook shellfish thoroughly. This is just things you should do uh, normally, I think, to prevent foodborne illness. Uh, so I think we're on the right track. Uh, we'll we'll let you know if we come down. We'll tweet about it if we're if we're I, like Ed, vomiting and diarrhea. That just freaked me out though.
2: Like when I was reading about that a couple of days ago, I was like, oh my, uh, I hate puking.
0: Yeah, that's probably my number one fear. I've said that. I don't know if I've said that on the podcast, but I just really don't like vomiting. I will tend to like avoid. Like, if I feel like I need, if like I feel very sick, vomiting is like my last, when it should be the first. Just like, throw up, you'll feel better. Gosh, it's just, it's rough. Uh, okay, anyway, so about this plot line, Ed is not going to die. He's just got stomach flu. The next scene with Joel and Maggie, I think is really interesting. They're at the brick and they're sort of unloading, decompressing about this whole uh, debriefing about what just happened. And... Um, Maggie kind of uh, points it out to Joel. It's like, you know, there's a very simple answer for why you feel bad. You feel guilty because you threw a lousy party. You didn't want to have a party in the first place, so you gave a half-hearted effort. And, you know, that just blew up in your face. And Joel's like, well, fine. I think the solution now is I just won't go to parties anymore. Like, I I don't need to go to parties. I just feel like I failed so bad. I don't want that to happen again.
2: Right, and Maggie has to remind him that You know, it's not about Joel. It's about other people. That's the secret of entertaining. It's having to realize that even though you're the host, uh, you're mostly just trying to cater to other people, which I think it's really neat that they're saying this type of stuff when the other plot line that we haven't talked about yet, which is Chris's plot line, is speaking about the responsibility of an artist, And the artist's relationship with their audience. So there's kind of a parallel going on here. I think that in terms of like this stuff uh, for both plot lines, you can be a great artist and you can also be a great audience member, just like you can be a great host and you can be a great guest. There's true etiquette between them. I, I try really hard to be a good audience member but I'll talk about that more whenever we get into (laughs) Christmas plot line. But for this particular one, we can see that Maggie is saying like, okay, well, Joe, you have to realize that like you're catering to them. They're not catering to you.
0: Yeah, and I like how he tries to call her out. It's like you were born with a silver napkin ring in your mouth. And she says, no, it's not like that. I was taught like I learned this and took time and effort to cultivate this skill. And, uh, you know, it's not something that you can just brush off. I think, again, I'm not criticizing Joel's initial philosophy of just like, let's not make a big deal out of it and just have a good time. But um, the truth is you you have to be prepared. You have to kind of put some effort in early on just so you know that your guests will be comfortable. Then you can all really hang out. But that, you know, it really is, we're gonna uh, keep thinking about my own personal feelings about this. And I know we've already said it's different than in Sicily uh, uh, compared to our own social groups. But it really is a tough uh, skill to have, like to be able to host a party and still hang out at a party. Because anytime that I have people over, I'm always like, uh, I don't know, it can be one of two things. I can be like Joel and just be uh, ignorant of the whole situation and kind of like, you know, not taking care of my guests and everything kind of falls apart. Or the other end of the spectrum where it's just like, I can't really have fun. I'm like hyper-focused on getting things out, uh, spending like time with every person. So it feels like I'm just talking to you for a second. And it's like, all right, peace. Like, you know, I don't really get to really be on the same level. I have a problem where I can't get in the middle space. Mm,
2: Yeah. I see what you mean right there. I think that like, those are all legitimate problems I hear, but I think that what's happening in this plot line in a subtextual level is that Joel's not really, committing or like putting his heart into the town he's not reciprocating what they've been giving to him you could argue whether you're like you know three seasons too late to be talking about this plot point but like (laughs) uh it's an interesting one to look into right there uh the giving and receiving and trying to be the push and pull of the relationship between uh the two parties right there and finally, we get to the end of the cycle and see how it's broken, which is in the last scene where Joel is at the brick. He's he's talking with Dave the cook, who's saying that he's going to have a brunch at his house. It's like a yearly thing that they do to celebrate mm-hmm. something. And he asked Joel if he wants to come. And Joel's like, I, you know, I guess I do. Like, I guess, <laughs> like, let me restart the cycle and let me yeah. try to be a better guest.
0: Yeah, I think it's like, this is now joel's initiation you know like this or you know there was maybe like, sorry i was just thinking like maybe his his joel's first dinner party was like his hazing and like now he's <laughs> brought into the group cuz that was just a traumatic experience but yeah this is now uh you know it's it's not like he's going to be shut off you know he went through hell and they still want him to to be to be a part of this circle uh this culture and uh, like you said, Joel is hesitant at first, but he does agree because he realizes, okay, like this is where it starts. And Joel says uh, to Dave, hey, can I bring anything? And Dave kind of plays it cool. He's like, pretends to think about it for a second. He's like, no, nah, you're good. No, thanks. And Joel, uh, we get his reaction. This is the last shot of the episode. Joel's just kind of like slyly nodding and and understanding and like they're on the same page and there's actually like the music is playing from uh, Chris's plot line at the end. He like does a really cool needle drop and Joel is just kind of bobbing his head really cool. Like now he's part of the club, you know, but uh, yeah. So the episode doesn't end with Joel getting a second chance at his own dinner party and having like a successful one, but it does end in a, in a space where we can see that Joel's on the right track And I bet the next dinner party is going to be, I would even say probably successful, you know? Hold up. I don't know why I didn't bring this up before. There's that episode, I want to say in the third season, when Joel invites everyone to his house for burgers. Because he realizes like how lonely it can be when you're just in a cabin all by yourself. That's true. (laughs) Come on. I mean like, okay, I know that was probably years ago from when this episode takes place. So he's probably out of the loop now if he is, you know, quote unquote, freeloading off of other people. But I mean, he has, he has had people over before, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the end of Joel's plotline. So uh, we got two other plotlines as is a uh, standard fare for Northern Exposure. Hauling uh, in Canada, as we kind of uh, alluded to, and Chris with um, the artist's obligation to The audience that you kind of referenced, what do you feel like talking about?
2: Ah, gosh, I don't know. I feel like both of them are equally fine to end on.
0: Yeah. Let's do Hollings. Is that cool? Yeah, Yeah, let's let's do do Hollings. Hollings, Because it's one of those that, you know, we don't get these very often, but every once in a while it'll happen where either the episode or a character, a plot within the episode takes place outside of Sicily. We get some Canada here and let's see, at the beginning of this plot line, we learn that Holling is a complete American citizen. He gave up his Canadian citizenship because uh, we learned this because Shelley is talking about their newborn baby being sort of like dual citizenship, perhaps, you know, how does that work? And Shelley didn't even realize that Holling does not have Canadian citizenship. This upsets her for some reason. And Holling says, well, look, it's before I even met you. This was like maybe like 20, 30 years ago that this happened. So, you know, he wouldn't have made that same choice probably if they had met before, uh, though I guess that would be physically impossible because of the age. (laughs) Um,
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's, I don't know about this. Is there any particular reason why you would give up citizenship of Canada? Like, because I know that like, I've heard of this, where you can give up citizenship uh, for maybe a a country that requires military service and you haven't served it yet. So like uh, South Korea, for example, would be uh, off the top of my head. But I'm 100% positive that Canada does not uh, (laughs) have required military (laughs) service. So... I'm wondering if there is actually a reason. Is it like a tax reason? Like,
0: uh, I, don't, I don't really know. I really don't know. I'm not, I don't have dual citizenship. I feel like I'm with you. I feel like that could be a boon to be a citizen of more than one nation. But obviously in those circumstances like South Korea, no, that would not be great. Um, turns out being a Canadian citizen is great because uh, this is why the subject is first broached Shelly is talking about baby Miranda because she wants to go get her like checkups and her vaccinations, whatever she needs in Canada, because national health picks up the tab. It's like completely free there. Uh, Shelly, Shelly not only is in love with the idea of, you know, free healthcare there. It turns out that she has uh, maybe she didn't even realize she has some deep seated love for Canada and it almost offends her as we see that Holling would give away his Canadian citizenship like that. She feels like it's uh, sort of slapdash, like you get it, should have given that some more thought, you know?
2: Right. Uh, it's basically like an episode exploring the identities that we're given with or that we're born with and what we can choose to uh, hold on to or give up. And Shelly, for this episode, is super gung ho about being Canadian because in the next scene in the brick, we see her being teased by Adam and Dave as they talk about the perceived flaws in <laughs> Canada. Which I I know it's like a you know a running joke to make fun of Canadian culture and how polite they are and everything. But like every culture has something to make fun of. Like every country. Yeah. He's like free game. There's something <laughs> wrong with every single country. There's no such thing as a perfect country right here. So uh, I don't really feel.
0: I feel like Adam in this episode was such a huge jerk. <laughs> well, one of his jabs is just like, "What is Canadian bacon? It's ham." Yeah.
2: You know? Oh, that's Dave. That's Dave.
0: Oh, that's Dave. Who says? Yeah, he talks about <laughs> not the even a big deal, but. Oh yeah. Adam talks about the the healthcare.
2: Yeah. He calls it like oh so this is gonna be like socialized healthcare right there. Uh, and he calls her he calls the whole thing like a Harold Wilson situation. Mm. Uh, Harold Wilson was, I didn't know this. He was prime minister of the UK twice from 1964 to 1970. And then from 1974 to 1976, he was the leader of the labor party from 1963 to 1976. So like that whole, like pretty much duration of that. So obviously he was a member of the labor party right there. Hmm. I tried looking into it. If like, if there was like a substantial increase in, in, like, socialized medicine in the UK, I got, like, a couple of New York Times articles from, like, the 1970s right there. I didn't... I mean, I was doing, like, a super cursory glance over there. It didn't seem like healthcare was, like, his huge plank that he was campaigning on. Not like... Um, I mean, mm. we're from America, so, like, obviously, 2008 Obama, that was, like, a huge deal for one of his policies was Obamacare. Uh, I don't believe Harold Wilson had that. I could be wrong, but that seems... Kind of odd that Adam would focus yeah, on that Strange. Name. And then Adam also says like, ah, this is what you expect when your national emblem is the beaver. First off, beavers are awesome. They're, they're my favorite animal. I, I love beavers. <laughs> There's no other animal that can ecologically affect the, the way they can, uh, besides human beings. Um, <laughs> they're they're really awesome. They have all these like neat little traits, but whatever. Um, I tried looking into it I don't know what he means by emblem, quote-unquote. Like, the maple leaf is mm-hmm. the most well-known symbol, but I don't know if a symbol and an emblem are two different things.
0: Yeah, I mean, is it on a flag somewhere? Uh, I know how we have, we in the United States, we have, like, state flower, state animal, state bird. They have that, state bird. too.
2: Yeah. They have, like, the state animal is the beaver or, like, the Canadian goose and, uh, uh, you know, all this stuff. But... There wasn't like a quote unquote national emblem right there.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm feeling maple leaf like you were saying. Yeah, but I'm not Canadian. I don't know too much about about that. But um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, this is just uh, Shelley getting defensive here. I mean, she should because they're picking on Canada, as you said. Like it's kind of ridiculous that they're just like so uh, so like uh, Canada bashing. I read this on Moose Chick. Apparently, I don't know. There's no source for it, but it says viewers in Canada were up in arms over the perceived Canada bashing. One viewer threatened a lawsuit for her emotional duress. Hey, it wasn't my favorite episode either, but it wasn't that bad. But (laughs) apparently people were really uh, upset. I guess Canadians were upset with uh, Northern Exposure making fun of them. But, uh, you know, I'm with you too, Charles. It's like every country is fair game. Just like... It's you gotta just have a, a sense of humor. It's just—it's
2: just so tiresome um, <laughs> to hear about can, uh, Canadian bashing right there, or talking about how polite they are. And it's yeah. like uh, it's just like old rehash jokes to right. me. But anyway, shelly says that she's going to be bringing the baby over to Canada. She's going to have uh, a fun time with her friend that she talked about earlier, Iris. She's going to be bringing this baby to all sorts of. Canadian events, and that's that's it for that scene. And uh, for the next one, we see that Holling is doing a lot of thinking about this because he's afraid that he's going to lose Shelley. Uh, he has a quote that says, like, the further and further she goes, the more Canadian she gets. <laughs> it's like, it's just like implying that, like, once she reaches the bottom of the bottle. So like <laughs> <laughs> when she travels down the road and she becomes hundred percent Canadian and she's got like 0% love left for him. It's like an inverse relationship.
0: Yeah. yeah there's a connection there. He's, he's drawing, he's uh, alone by the water trying to do some thinking and Walt shows up cause Walt's there to catch his breakfast. He says they talk it out. And, um, Holling even says he's considering giving up his American citizenship for Shelley um i think walt says oh go ahead
2: (laughs) that's just like what a. am sorry this is like the immigrant part of me that's coming out but like that's like one of the best things is the american (laughs) citizenship man you know how hard it is to be an american to like get through that citizenship test you're gonna give that up (laughs) you're already not a canadian where are you gonna go dude your country list
0: Yeah. Well, Walt's, Walt's opinion here, he says, you know, this citizenship business is jive to me. The Indians didn't recognize any difference between borders. And he says something to the effect of like, it was, um, it was some more recent genius that came up with drawing those lines and making those borders. Yeah. So like, a. <laughs> a more removed perspective here. But of course I feel like that's Walt is the person to give that take, uh, apart from like Chris, maybe, you know?
2: Yeah. It's got a lot of subtext because the talks of borders are happening across like all of the plot lines. Like Mm. Joel is crossing the perceived border of where social etiquette would be. And Shelly is literally crossing the border. So Walt's talking about how they're like just concepts to us, how they don't actually exist.
0: Yeah. Speaking of the Canadian border, our next scene here with like the hauling Shelley plotline is in Canada. We get text on screen, Canada, it says, and Shelley is uh, (laughs) exiting a taxi. You know, I forgot, does it say like Canada taxi? I don't know. It probably doesn't say that, but there's like a decal on the side of the car. Can't remember what it says, but
2: uh, it says a uh, jackrabbit taxi company. Okay.
0: Yeah. I wonder if that has any, you know, em- emblemage of Canada. <laughs> I don't know. She gets out of the taxi with her baby Miranda and her friend Iris is there. Sorry, this was funny. Like Shelly is just excited about everything Canadian. Like there's this Wrangler Jeep there and she says, oh, sweet. This is awesome. And her friend uh, Iris says, oh, we just call it the YJ. And, um, I Googled, what does YJ stand for? And the answer on Google was YJ stands for excellence in design. So it's just obviously like a company (laughs) motto. I still don't know what it stands for.
2: I saw that too. I looked a little (laughs) bit deeper. I wasn't getting any more concrete answers. So like some people say like it stands for a youth Jeep, uh, um, or it could stand for a yuppie Jeep. So like (laughs) those urban, uh, like rich kids that like wanted to buy one on a lark and like pretend that are like outdoorsy. So it's kind of sounds like a pejorative.
0: Yeah. But like I guess only in that that lens. Yeah. Yeah. For, for Shelly, it's just really cool. It's something that recalls her nostalgia for her homeland, I guess. Um, also words like washroom, You know, she's like, her friend Iris says, you know, if you need to go use the washroom or this or that, and um, Shelly's like, oh, that's so great to hear that again, washroom. In America, it's bathroom this, bathroom that. (laughs) It's like, I don't know, it's really funny, but obviously... You know, there is a difference there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. Uh, oh, like, I guess before we forget, we didn't talk about this on the last thing. It's a very small thing. But there's like this whole thing where Shelley is accosting, hauling about the motto of Quebec. And it turns out it is, I remember that is the motto. And people throughout the episode are like, I remember what? Like, what, what exactly are you remembering? And I think that plays throughout the entire episode where like Shelly is remembering how things were. But like, yeah. just like how they question, like, what are you remembering? Like, what does that motto mean? I think it, perhaps Shelly is not remembering like the right things about Canada.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Or like maybe there's something in her memory that's
0: misleading her. What's well, like the nostalgia factor like the golden age of her youth or whatever. She just remembers the good things, as you said. Um, let's see. Okay. Again, the next scene here, text on screen. It says, somewhere near the Canadian border, Hauling is snowmobiling across the landscape. There's this song called Oh Marie by Daniel Lenoir playing. Very cool music, I think, in this scene. Uh, has a very... Cajun, Acadian style, you know, I think. Um, I believe the artist is Canadian. Yep, Canadian record producer, guitarist, vocalist, and songwriter. He's produced uh, lots of albums with Brian Eno, with many famous artists. Um, Big time producer. But uh, Holling is driving the snowmobile to cross a bridge border, and there's a border guard standing there, like right on the bridge, I'm gonna play the sound bite from this scene. I just thought it was funny. This is like the most talkative border guard <laughs> I've ever known.
1: Passport. Oh, right. And what is the purpose of your trip? Well, let's just say personal business. Hmm, American, huh? Me too, Shore Hill, New Jersey. What are you doing up here? Vietnam. Are you a draft dodger? I refuse to kill for an administration that I didn't elect in a show of force that wasn't sanctioned by the people. You think this was the easy way out? I've had my punishment. I've been exiled. I thought they granted you fellas amnesty. Mm. Got married, had two kids. (laughs) You carry any fruits and vegetables? Nope. Uh, Transporting any livestock? Nope. All right, enjoy your stay. I'm not staying.
0: So that's pretty cool. Holland gets a little last word before he revs up the engine. But yeah, I just thought that was really funny. This guy's talking about his whole like life story here at the, uh, at the border cross.
2: (laughs) Yeah. uh, I guess he kind of has a point. I mean, that's like some Henry David Thoreau stuff right there. (laughs) Like some civil disobedience (laughs) stuff. Like,
0: yeah, I mean, it's a really difficult one. No, yeah. I I agree. I agree with him. I I like his life choices, but uh, it's just like, a lot I get it.
2: Yeah. I like, I get it. It's just like, I don't know. It's a lot to give up. (laughs) You know, that American
0: citizenship right there. Charles is proud of his citizen citizenship here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? We get into the next scene, which is uh, decked out in red. It's going to be with Shelley with Iris. They're checking out this Canadian, what looks to be like a Canadian like gift store. Mm-hmm. It looks like one of those things that you see at the airport um, to hawk like their um, geographical uh, goods right there. Because it looks like it's only selling like Canadian like dolls and flags. I not like a grocery store or anything like that. That's why I'm like, this must just be like, uh, just a store that sells Canadian merchandise.
0: Yeah. It's, yeah, it's definitely like one of those gift shops, probably near a border. I would assume, I don't know where Shelly actually is. Well, she did say, did she say she was just popping over the border? Maybe she is close. I don't actually know where she is, but you know, you see those kind of things definitely when you, um, Pull over, at least in America, when you pull over to like a rest stop, when you cross into the the next state, you know they might have like a gift shop. We definitely have one in um, like near Lake Charles, where we're from Charles, because it's kind of close to Texas. Um, so on your way between the two, you might see like a "Welcome to Lake Charles" and "Welcome to Louisiana." But yeah, I think that's where she's at. She's at like Canadian. Uh, memorabilia shop.
2: Ah, uh, yeah, there, there we go. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah. And this is where like all, like I remembered things kind of coming into play because she's remembering. It's like, oh, right. Like, you know, in America, they do it this way. And then her friend has to tell her like, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like that's terrible. And Shelly's like, yeah, you know, maybe it's not that bad. They would at least tell me the price
0: of this doll. Yeah, the, um, the shop clerk won't, you know, the shop clerk doesn't, is not very helpful. Shelly says, like, no one in Canada ever says, may I help you?
2: Right. I, I don't know if that's actually...
0: Yeah. Is that actually is that true? true? I've never been to Canada. I know, like, the stereotype for, like, European countries or, like, France or whatever in certain countries is, you know, the the um, customer service or whatever. People are not very helpful. That's the stereotype.
2: I've been there twice. Once when I was, like, really, really young and once when I was 14. Uh, so, but, like, I, I mean, honestly, 14 is not a good a good age to judge an entire country. So take what I say with like a giant grain of salt right here. But I remember them asking us if we needed help in um in Calgary.
0: I've experienced both the last time I was in France or when I was in France, the only time. I could, it's not like I go to France all the time. But uh, I had both ways where servers were attentive or Other times like, we would just have to go find the server. It's like when we like, try to get our order, but then again, I don't even know. That's maybe that's a social faux pas. Like we don't, (laughs) I don't even know how that works. (laughs) Um, yeah. Shelly steps outside from this gift shop and the wind is like blowing in her hair. Feels like maybe a majestic moment, but by the end of the scene, she says, huh, I just remember it bigger. Like, you know, obviously she was a lot smaller the last time she was in Canada. Actually, I don't, you know, let's see, when did she leave? She probably missed Northwest Passage. So still a teen, I guess. But anyway, some of her nostalgia would be associated with um, a physically lower point of view where everything else is larger than (laughs) you. So uh, Yeah, quite literally. (laughs) So, yeah, she's not seeing it through the same lens anymore. Physically, yeah.
2: Right. Uh, it brings us to one of the final scenes involving the Shelly potline. They're at the Winterfest, and mm-hmm. Shelly's kind of just looking around. Uh, her friend calls her like like a hang dog.
0: Yeah, I remember. <laughs> she said, yeah,
2: it's <laughs> like, I'm, I'm guessing through context clues. It's just like somebody just kind of just he's uh, by themselves, just yeah. checking out the the place. And Hauling is now driving in with his snowmobile. It's coming in hot. <laughs> coming in there <laughs> there's like a lot of commentary from the background people <laughs> in turn this whole scene where they're like what are they Whoa, saying? you need to you need to slow down or like ah like what is he
0: singing like it's just like a bunch of funny oh, stuff yeah. i caught
2: on the subtitles
0: <laughs> yeah because he rolls in there and um He just starts reciting, you know, what is it? This land was made for you and me. Is that the, I don't know the name of that song. I'm guessing. Yeah, from Woody Guthrie. Okay, yeah. (laughs) And uh, he starts reciting that and then it becomes like, he starts singing it too. And I feel like there's like a musical backing track that started like comes in and like is accompanying him. There's like, uh you know stock footage of like eagles and things like that right
2: yeah one of the one of the stock footages is a moose being like airlifted (laughs) just like I'm not I'm not saying that like that probably happens for a totally legitimate reason. Moose are really large animals. Maybe it was injured. I'm not making fun of that. I was making fun of like
0: that's just one of the choices. Oh he changes the lyrics a bit because he starts singing it like, you know, the song is, but he throws in a lot of Canadian landmarks in that, um, in his version. So he's kind of bridging America like landmarks and I don't know, scenes with Canadian ones and kind of putting it together in this song. Uh, we got to remember John Colm is a Tony winning performer here. You know, he's like, <laughs> he's, he's given it his all there. Um, uh, much praise to him and Yeah. One of those kind of wacky Northern Exposure endings that, uh, I don't know, this one definitely felt uh, something, you know, we don't get a whole lot in Northern Exposure, but super theatrical feeling, which is cool.
2: Yeah, like everyone joins in, like they realize what's happening <laughs> every here. I, I think it's like kind of neat because it's like the combination of both countries. Yeah. Like it's a super American idea. So to use your concepts into another country, (laughs)
0: just put it in there. But maybe like Walt was saying, you know, there are no borders. We're like bridging those, bridging those uh, lands.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, like more that unites us to divide us, all that stuff.
0: Uh, So I guess things work out good for them. I forget. Does Shelly like hop on the snowmobile and they drive off or does it just kind of end with the song? Do they kiss or something?
2: Uh, I think they just hug and then like just kind of ends.
0: (laughs) That's the end of their plot line. Um, with, with much fanfare, but we've still got Chris to cover. So back at the beginning of the episode with Chris, he's got like a, his K-Bear monologue. I wrote down Chris snoozing. So I think he talks about hitting the snooze button, talking about, uh, not being a fan of Spyro Gyra. Oh, it's because when he was in jail, one of his like cellmates or something would only want to listen to this one song. I guess they, he talks about how they got records and record players and stuff in prison or in jail and um, always listening to Spyro Gyra. Chris was dreaming of the music that he would hear when he would get out. And one song that he really wanted to hear or maybe it was just the song that he chose, uh, his first song as like a, a newly freed man, is this song Pencil Neck Geek by Freddie Blassie, which he plays now on the air.
2: I think that's actually kind of neat that he would have a yearning for one particular song. So instead of like a food, like maybe like, oh, I was really wanting the Whopper or something like that. It was a song that he wanted to listen to. And I I didn't think about that. If you would get stuck in prison, that would be one of the things.
0: Yeah. It is kind of crazy because um, I've definitely had urges to listen to song. I think everyone wants to listen to their favorite song or it's like, oh, this is the perfect song for the moment. We have... cell phones we can just queue it up at any moment's notice. Wow, imagine having like an earworm in your head and there's no way for you to to access that music. I guess now there's uh, you know in some some prisons and jails there's like computer time maybe so maybe you can alleviate that but um but no, I mean yeah, imagine like trying to recall a song and it's got to be such a magical moment to it, if it if it lasts this long like years later to hear that song wow
2: right so he plays a song we we get like a like a good like 30 seconds of it going throughout the town everyone's listening to it and the next time that we see chris we see him being approached by walt and he's saying that edgar hankins has passed away but has passed away too early because it was by suicide he heard the song decided that maybe it was too much to bear. Maybe it like, I mean, the lyrics kind of sounded kind of taunting. So maybe he had applied it to his own life. Yeah. And he was like, oh shoot, this is uh way too real. And he decides to commit suicide. I thought it was really
0: dark. Yes. Like what was going on? <laughs> Definitely. And they try to make a joke of it. Walt says it's a double suicide. His goat was with him. Like, uh, so he locks himself oh in his garage God. and with the truck running. So he like asphyxiates. But I mean, come on, poor goat. Like, that's not even funny. Like, stop. I don't know. I was like listening to all of it. I was like, geez. Anyway, uh, yeah. So that is it's very dark. Um, the scene actually starts out really fun though. Um, as you said, they're in the laundromat. Walt comes in and he's about to like start saying something, and Chris immediately cuts him off. And he's like, Oh, look, found cash in my pants. Don't you love when that happens? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's little moments like that where I wish we see more of those like, I don't know, false leads or just like, it feels like it's a real moment, you know? It has nothing to do with the dialogue or the plot. Uh, But yeah, there is a letter that Edgar, this man who killed himself, he left a letter for Chris. Walt is delivering it now. I wrote this down and I think this is, if I'm not mistaken, the entirety of the letter. I cast my lot with Chris Stevens. He played the song on the radio that said it all for me. Pencil neck geek. Uh, it's a very clear line that we can draw between um, Chris's song selection and Edgar's reasoning for killing himself.
2: Yeah. Um, Chris delivers the eulogy at his funeral, just in all black, and he ends up by saying that, like, you know, uh, I guess some people, when they look out of jail cell, they see the
1: stars. Other people, they see mud. guess there's no dancing around it. Everybody here knows it. Young Edgar says I hitched his wagon to the reaper. Uh, look, I, I played a song that was beautiful for me and for Edgar, it, it hit a button marked emotional meltdown. I, I don't know why that is, I mean. Two guys looked out through prison bars and one saw mud and one saw stars. That's, that's just how it works, I guess. Maybe that's no excuse. I mean, maybe those of us who are lucky enough to touch people through art or the airwaves have an obligation to think about all those eyes and ears out there. Anyway, innocently or not, I put the last straw on in Indra's back.
2: I, I already found, like, th- there are some issues with it, but there are also sometimes, in which I kind of agree with that statement. There, there's, like, this quote. Uh, I'm going to quote again from the West Wing, like I always do. But there's the U.S. Poet Laureate episode where mm-hmm. they're talking with Tabitha Fortes, who is going to become the U.S. Poet Laureate. And she has this line where she says... You think I think that an artist's job is to speak the truth? An artist's job is to captivate you for however long we've asked for your attention. If we stumble into truth, we got lucky and I don't get to decide what truth is. So Mm -hmm. essentially what that quote is saying is that like the artist's job isn't to like be a stenographer or to always find the exact one-to-one wording and deliver it to you. It's simply to craft a story to enchant you with. And from there, you kind of just take it and run with it. This is also bringing into mind like authorial intent. Mm-hmm. It's bringing like a lot of concepts into mind right there. But with that in mind, that also gets me thinking about like the responsibilities that we have whenever we go in the air and talk about uh, complex issues. Mm-hmm. Um, by that, I mean like... You see it all the time with comedians in particular, where they'll talk about a very complex issue and make some punchlines out of it, you know, make it make it funny, make it flashy. But they, they sometimes misinterpret or misread the subject in line because it's really complicated. People get PhDs in these types of things, these economic concepts or uh, medical concepts. The the comedian just wants to make a punchline out of this, but uh, sometimes they like teeter on the edge where they're kind of speaking like this universal truth and people take that as fact. And you might say like, well, that's their fault. It's the audience's mm-hmm. fault. They should, they should realize as a comedian, but comedians are super skilled at misdirection. That's like Yeah, Pretty much their superpower is to misdirect you. So that's how they get the punchline in. It's kind of wrong for a comedian to say like, oh, maybe this political ideology is like completely wrong. And let me tell you why. And he tries to dress it up and then tries to wholesale it to everybody. And it turns out that like, it was completely false. And they always fall back on the excuse and say like, I'm just a comedian, you know, you should not take my word. (laughs) It was just like, it's your fault. Yeah, but like sometimes when the shoe is flipped, it's really hard to tell when you're being serious and when you're just making a joke.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're using, as you say, misdirection, that's just not a great, like it's not it's not good to be playing around with, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a super interesting topic. I definitely agree. And I really like this, uh, the ideas in this storyline here. But I think this episode of Northern Exposure is trying to figure out like what our responsibility is, as you're saying, Charles, as an artist and as an audience and how we can, you know, where, where do we draw the line with, uh, self-censorship, which I think is about to happen right in the next scene.
2: Yeah. In, in the next scene, it's going to be with Ed and Chris there in K-Bear and uh, they're dumping out any records that might have anything that isn't 100% positive, any, <laughs> uh, Sad lyrics, anything that could be construed as morose, they throw it away because they don't want this to happen again. And it's not like it's a one-off case either because Chris gets a lot of mail saying like, you know, ever since like little Timmy started listening to whatever, he started going nuts on the wallpaper or something like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Man, it's really funny when they're going through all this music because it's Chris and Ed and they're looking at all the records and – First, they toss out uh, Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues. Chris has too many minor chord progressions. Um, He wants to toss out Billie Holiday, and Ed is like, well, you know, not all of her stuff is gloomy, but Chris argues that her personal life is very upsetting, and that kind of permeates the music, and we can feel that in the music. Ed tries to fit in Ella Fitzgerald because it's happy jazz, and... um, what is it, Bruce Springsteen? They get really excited about that. But then uh there's this one lyric on the song, I'm on fire. The knife, edgy and dull, can cut a six-inch valley through the middle of my soul. And so Chris, like, immediately throws the record away.
2: Yeah, I, I think that, like, the statement they're kind of trying to say at this point is, like, you know, you need a little bit of sadness in your life. You need like a little bit of uh, darkness in order to enrich uh, the the positive things. So I I, I kind of get <laughs> that, but I feel like this is a poor vehicle in order to explore that avenue. But
0: see, I was I was getting from this scene that like they're the problems of with censorship because it's just cutting out like you if you wanted to like where do you draw the line when it comes to mm-hmm. censorship? Because if you cut one thing out, you might as well. Remove, I think in the next time we see Chris's uh his his K Bear Studio the what used to hold all his records maybe has like four four vinyls on it like there's no <laughs> records left.
2: Yeah, uh, that's that's interesting. That you went in that direction, mm. and you're right. In the next scene, Chris is kind of just uh, being really careful with his words. He realizes that he holds mm. a lot of power, so he's saying like. Hey, you know, there's a lot of there's a silver lining in the clouds. Um, don't take it the wrong way. I don't mean like you should be valuing money or anything <laughs> like that. He's trying to keep it very, very G-rated.
0: Yeah, let me play that uh, the soundbite of this scene. It's it's funny how he kind of switches back and forth. Like he says one thing and then immediately has to try to correct himself as to not plant the wrong idea in someone's
1: mind. I guess. Look cloudy out there today. Don't let that get you down, though. Every cloud has a silver lining, right? Not that, you know, silver's important or anything like that. I mean, it's more life than the buck, right? Talking about, you know, seeing that glass half full or uh, making lemons in a lemonade.
0: Yeah, I. sorry, I'm looking at my notes here. It says, uh, I have a quote from Chris. I've come to realize the power of this thing. I can't abuse it. I think that was in the, um, the previous scene, though, when he's like, throwing out the uh, records. He references like a giant stack of listener mail that he's already gotten. Uh, Because I think Adam is like, he's intercepted this letter that's going to go to the local newspaper and he wanted to like give Chris uh, the jump on it. Like, look, someone's like criticizing you and Chris is like, oh, I know. Like I've gotten so so much listener mail.
2: Right. Uh, I mean, shoot. (laughs) We keep talking about power. Yeah. Keep thinking about that. Classic
0: Spider-Man quote. <laughs> <laughs> with, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. I mean, hold up. That that quote has permeated our culture like so much now. Like, is it originally just like Spider-Man? I mean, I'm sure it was said in different ways before, but that just <sighs> seems like such a classic idiom that it maybe started before Spider-Man.
2: I, it's got its own Wikipedia page.
0: It says it's an ancient adage. At least as old as the first century BC, in the illusion of the sword of Damocles.
2: Oh, no way. Ulysses S. Grant kind of has that. Yeah, in his memoirs. He goes, uh, In positions of great responsibility, everyone should do his duty to the best of his ability.
1: Mm -hmm. There you go.
2: Uh, US President William McKinley used it in 1899 in his State of the Union address. Presented to this Congress are great opportunities, with them come great responsibilities. And Winston Churchill said, where there is great power, there is great responsibility.
0: Yeah. An ancient adage, as Wikipedia says, uh, see also noblesse oblige. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Well, what happens after that soundbite we played? That's kind of that scene contained. But what's the next scene with Chris?
2: Uh, it's the town hall.
0: Oh, right. where They call it town hall.
2: <laughs> yeah, Chris is seated in the middle. He doesn't say a word. Uh, he's just being judged by his town folks and the mayor's there. Kind of holding a session on like what to do with this radio station and the ramifications that they can do. And all of the townsfolk have their own things. One might say like, uh, you know, we're all adults. Let's if you don't like it, turn it off. It's yeah. so all you got to do right there. And then another one counters back by saying like, well, we may all be adults, but what about the children? The Radio <laughs> is a constant presence in our life. And that it's pretty much considered like a quote unquote parent. And like, I don't <laughs> want them teaching like the wrong things to my child. Uh, Dave, I believe also chimes in and he's saying like, it's anti all this stuff. What it's he's anti-family.
0: Playing. It's yeah. Uh, wait. Very, wait, very conservative values. <laughs> Hold on. Let me, because um, I forget. The la- he says anti-family, anti-marriage, or something like. He's the last one is really funny. But I have like the soundbite. It's it's a long scene, so I'll I'll try to chop it down. But I I want to find certain parts.
3: A lot of Chris's programming is anti-family, the Nietzsche, the throw, and it trivializes animals.
0: It trivializes animals. I thought, I thought that was true. Really, <laughs> uh, I don't know how, how we're getting that interpretation. I don't know what Chris has said in the past that uh, that is a, that <laughs> trivialized animals, but yeah. <laughs> also, the guy starts talking about de Tocqueville.
1: Hold it. Hold on. Just a minute. We have to be careful here. De Tocqueville warned about the tyranny of the masses dragging everything down to the lowest common denominator. We have to accept the fact that art and culture transcend the traditional rules of a society.
0: Uh, I love it when the, you know, it seems like these are just like bumbling yokels, but they have some uh, <laughs> some pretty deep knowledge on, um, I don't know, philosophy here and there. Of course, Marilyn gets the last word. The radio didn't kill Edgar. Edgar killed the radio. Which I guess says a lot, but not... At the same time, doesn't say a lot. <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> yeah,
2: I think she's saying like, it's not necessary that like the radio was what led to his death. Maybe it was already cooking underneath. Like there was a mm-hmm. whole bunch of factors. But going forward, if we use his death as the reason we banned radio, that is 100% real. Like we mm. know for certain that that led we to that. We know the cause,
0: yeah. Right. We don't know the cause for Edgar's death. I mean- I know we wrote, wrote down the, the radio, but it could be a number of things. Obviously, uh, we're all speculating about the power of the radio now. We don't know for certain, but if we do censor Chris, then um, you know we know that Edgar will have killed the radio.
2: Right? Yeah, and you talked about that guy that's quoting de Tocqueville and everything, which <laughs> yeah. is also like it's kind of corny. Yeah. Like, but it's also kind of like, you know, what he's saying is like uh, somewhat true. Like, there's a connection between the progress of a society and progress in the arts. Like, the age <laughs> of like Pericles was also the age of Phidias, yada, yada, yada. But ultimately, I think Marilyn's ending word is actually the winning argument. Yeah. Because the next time we see Chris, he's in his radio station and he's saying, like, you know, the mind can do like a whole lot of things. And there's a lot of people being invited to the party. Once you're already there, you know, you might as well make the most of it. And then he plays the next song in honor of Edgar Hankins, who has gone to a place where he never has to feel agitated or offended ever again.
0: Yeah, it's a very, um, you know, he's not like spitting in the face of Edgar. It's very understanding and uh, respectful. But um, But yeah, he's like, he's going to play the music that he wants to hear. Uh, or, you know, that he thinks people might want to listen to and understands the power of, I guess now he has a better understanding of the power of his situation and respect for what he does, but he's not going to let it censor himself. Actually, I Actually, have a really funny story about this song that Chris is playing. So he plays Hey Joe by Jimi Hendrix, which, wonderful song, really good song. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Charles, but the lyrics imply... um. Basically a man, like, killing his lover. Uh, It's like, hey, Joe, what are you doing with that gun in your hand? He's going to shoot his old lady down, things like that. Actually, I don't know if Jimi Hendrix originated this song or if it was just, like, a standard maybe, and he just has a very popular version. Whatever it is, his version's awesome. But my story, uh, my personal story with this song, goes back to, like, very early high school days. I want to say it was, like, the very first time I ever played a gig that was, like, at a venue, you know, an actual venue. This is in Lake Charles. I was actually playing with our past guest back in season two, Taylor. He had another band, but his drummer, like literally I think the day before, broke his arm in a cast. And his drummer actually asked me, he's like, would you fill in? Like, it's all just cover songs. You know, most of them, you can follow along. And we played, we, you know, even though I wasn't in that band, i played with Taylor a lot. Um, but yeah, this was a big sort of gig for us cause we were all very young. They're actually a year younger than me and we'd never really played at a, at a venue. And this was like a, a night in Lake Charles that was like a bar crawl fundraiser thing. And we were going through our set list. The fundraiser was for, uh, victims of domestic abuse. So we were like, uh, well, no, we definitely can't play Hey Joe. Like we we're talking about that and it's like, uh, you know, that's going to cut our set list down. We got to figure out, we have to fill the time, you know, cause back in the day we were like, oh man, we got to play for this right amount of time. Like they're going to, what are we going to do if we can't fill the slot? And um, the, the craziest thing is that the band that went on before us played Hey Joe as their closer. Oh um,
2: my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah.
0: Uh, I just thought that was hilarious because uh, we were so, I mean, it's obviously the wrong thing to do. Like you don't play that song, but we were like, we recognized that it was a bad move, but it still happened. <laughs> what, what did you guys uh, end up playing in uh, place of it? I don't remember. We It was all covers like Clapton, classic rock, uh you know, Beatles stuff.
2: Yeah. Like the thing you do. Rolling Stones. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, we did have a bit of a little, we noticed Hey Joe and we went, we did censor or like had a moment to try to censor our set list. I think that was literally the only song where we were like, you can't, we can't play this right now. (laughs) Like I think Taylor was like, I feel, I would feel weird singing or actually Blade, I think was the name of the singer at the time. He's like, I don't think I can sing that (laughs) at this fundraiser.
2: Yeah, and that song goes across the town of Sicily. Uh, Marilyn puts on, like, her headphones. She kind of jams along with it. Presumably we're led to believe that, like, the townsfolk are happy
0: with this decision. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, we never really return to that mindset of the argument of, um, of that, uh, that town hall meeting. As you said, Charles, seems like everyone just accepted uh, Marilyn's bit, like, her perspective. Everyone agreed with that, it seemed. But yeah, you're right. Get a little montage, people listening to this song. And uh, as we said, the very last shot is Joel bobbing his head to the music. Now he's part of the club and he understands the rituals of this uh, dinner club culture. It's pretty cool. Okay, Charles, now is the point in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest, typically someone who has never seen the show, and get their opinion of the episode. Kind of like, you know, this is the only episode they have seen, so very removed from the series as a whole, but does the episode stand up on its own? Um, Well, today our guest is my good friend, Ben. Ben is sort of like an audio wizard, sound engineer, uh, sound mixer, very talented. I've definitely learned a lot from him and I'm very excited to have him on and see his thoughts about Northern Exposure. So without further ado, let's see what he has to say.
3: All right. This has been Sellers um, doing my little take on this episode. I've never seen the show before, and um, just starting it and getting the whole vibe. It gave me this kind of um, I'm a big Tremors fan and. I almost felt like this was like this Canadian or Alaskan version of this tremors dystopia being shown in the opening music credits. I just imagined this moose walking around and all the people have been eaten by graboids. Um, anyway, yeah, the the whole show gives me this David Lynch kind of twin peaks vibe. If you took twin peaks, um, and then you sucked out all of the, the really creepy stuff and just left this warm, fuzzy, uh, maple syrup drunk feeling, and uh, yeah, the whole show gave me this great, uh, cozy kind of, I guess, the northern hospitality of the episode. The first scene of the Chef Boyer D kind of lumberjack dude, he reminds me a lot of this kind of new wave of chefs that are kind of rebels. And I guess where I come from in Cajun country, there's a lot of these kind of roughneck uh, chefs that are actually amazing cooks but they can be a little intimidating for people and, and maybe stuck up at, at, at their worst but um, do make great food um, yeah fleshman the doctor he is trying to you know come to terms with uh, maybe he has some narcissism or maybe he's just not as socially adept as he thought and having to throw together a dinner party definitely threw me back into some kind of PTSD of, of trying to put a party together and I have a tendency to, to overshoot what I want to do. And then it just, Maybe doesn't turn out right. I would never use canned mushrooms, but um, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. But um, definitely trying to, to get everything last minute put together, and then someone shows up early. It's just uh, it's a fun little it was it was a fun little thing to show. But yeah, I guess um, the other big thing that's being dealt with is in, in this episode, which I, I thought was interesting, is this kind of censorship, and um, which is seems very relevant in these times of, of social media censorship and, and maybe like woke culture and trying to figure out the best way to go about all this like cancel culture and stuff. Um, Cause you see this, the the radio philosopher guy trying to figure out what to do with this power that he realizes he has and ultimately self-expression and, and kind of like, you know, the artistic uh, highs and lows of, of music um went out and people get to hear some nice uh jimmy in the end but um yeah i really i i kind of just uh i enjoyed the episode i was i was also kind of you know it it can be confusing just jumping into a show that you've never seen uh but i enjoyed it it was kind of like wearing a warm fuzzy uh blanket and uh watching these people kind of figure out their place in this northern life, especially Fleshman. I guess he's kind of the outsider. He gives me this this George from Seinfeld vibe that everyone's kind of you know, he felt especially picked on in this episode. I don't know if it's, if it's always the case, but um, he seems a little aloof, but also smart, but I'm um, glad no one got botulism from the mushrooms. Um, you also get these kind of questions about nationalism and, and Canada kind of um people dealing with their heritage as a Canadian and and you see this woman go to uh, back to Canada and really try to to just soak it all in but also be disenchanted at the same time with what she remembered as a child and I love the um the guy showing up on taking a snowmobile in some kind of you know American hero fashion just blasting through this whole uh, winter fest that's going on but then also singing this national anthem that he's making up that somehow combines America and Canada in, in, a, in a kind of a beautiful way but I guess it's like a show of love and a show of his kind of just like hey whatever you want to be a Canadian or American or whatever um I'm going to take that and, and sing with it. So, um, yeah, it was quite fun. So yeah, the one thing that got me going and I, hopefully I'm not doing this while I'm talking is that the radio show guy seemed to not be able to talk directly into his microphone for being a radio show host. you think he would kind of stay, um, on axis a little bit more? Um, he seems mic shy, which is kind of funny. Yeah. And the other thing, the phrase of the God is in the details got me confused because I've always heard the devil's in the details, but I guess up north God's in the details, uh, especially when you're throwing a dinner party. Um, it also made me realize I don't have uh, dinner parties or go to them ever, which maybe it's kind of this lost social practice and the art of getting together and, and doing this. And so I think it's dead. People just kind of, post pictures of what they're eating and it's kind of this new form of a dinner party of posting it online on instagram or something and trying to share that with other people i don't know um let's get dinner parties going again y'all come on maybe everyone else is doing it i'm just not being invited i don't know (laughs) that's always possible but yeah i enjoyed it um I was just surprised at the, the, the storylines all going at the same time. And then this kind of, um, actually more deep issues being thrown out, but also in kind of like this, not really a funny way or a particularly fun way, but just kind of a, a homey vibe to the whole experience. Um, which I enjoy. It was not too heavy and not too light, um, kind of coasting somewhere in the middle. But, um, anyway, thanks, uh, for listening. Um, I guess I had that one question, um, to answer, which I was presented. I think one situation where I felt stuck that happened in my life, um, that I ended up getting out of. And it's kind of funny because Fleishman, I think Fleischman—Fleischman. I'm not sure how to say his name, um, reminded me of it. I actually ended up I'm not a doctor, but I did go to uh, med school and spent a lot of time preparing for that and studying and testing and got into med school. And I think I realized that I actually didn't want to be there and I felt stuck. I didn't stick it out, obviously. I ended up leaving, but um, I'm happy I went through the experience. I ended up kind of learning that maybe just because you've Done something and and put all this energy into something doesn't mean that you have to stay stuck with it per se. But anyway, thanks for listening and um, get some northern exposure there, y'all. All All right.
2: All right. That was Ben with his analysis right there. I like that he compares it to Tremors. I think that's (laughs) that's the first time anyone has ever
0: compared it to that, right? I think so. I like what he was pointing out that it's so I think he's talking about the opening title sequence. and uh, how like the entire town is just abandoned except for this one moose? Like some graboids just ran in there and, and ate all the town, I guess. <laughs> uh, I was trying to think of the name of the town in Tremors. It's uh, I looked it up to remember. It's Perfection. Perfection, Nevada is where Tremors is set.
2: What I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but yeah, I also you know we love Tremors here. Great, great, uh, great movie. I wonder. Obviously, a lot of our guests focus on this title sequence. It's very iconic. The moose, you know, is sort of a symbol of northern exposure. Even though there aren't a lot of moose in northern exposure, but what do you think? The we know like what we know how they shot it. You know, they were like it was like at sunrise, uh, and like all the businesses were closed, and they just had like a moose walking around. I guess I guess the idea behind it is because they wanted to get sunrise for the golden hour make it look really nice with this moose walking around but what do you do you think there's any intention behind it just being like it is an abandoned town basically is what it reads as because it's before anyone shows up
2: Uh well we're like <laughs> we should have been asking this yeah <laughs> like episode yeah. <laughs> two <laughs> so what i think it could kind of mean is that like um There's a lot of emphasis on nature or just letting things be. So just having the moose there, Mm. no other characters, no other cast, no other humans. It's emphasizing a point that like uh, this show is going to be a little out there. It's not going to be like your standard multi-camera sitcom. You're about to be in for something unusual, like the town of Sicily itself. Like that is the focus. It's the town.
0: Yeah. We get like the backdrop I wonder if it's supposed to represent just sort of like the tone, as you're saying, and sort of the backdrop, like the elements of the show, or like this could very well be like sunrise on Main Street Sicily. Because, you know, I don't know, it, it does feel so empty, but because of that, like it is a small town. Might be something you might see in Sicily at the crack of dawn, just like a moose walking around when no one's awake.
2: So I, I heard, I read recently that like there is a lot of moose to the point that like it's a it's a pest species in oh, Sweden.
0: Okay, yeah. So I mean, maybe they have a similar thing going on in in Sicily, this fictional town. It's like a uh, <laughs> they're overrun with moose.
2: Yeah. Well, Ben goes on to say that he likes this. Um, he likes this new age chef look, though. New age <laughs> is kind of like you know this is like thirty years ago, so yeah, maybe yeah. <laughs> it's very retro. But I guess uh, people have an idea of chefs being very clean with that white mm-hmm. apron, that mm-hmm. little um, you know that that getup that they have. <laughs> and now there's like this rough and tumble new bad boy chefs. I feel like we have that, and almost like every profession like it's like oh that's like the bad boy of architecture or something like that yeah like <laughs> like it brings to mind like there's always like that person that's like okay he got educated at Juilliard Um, they're very very adept at classical training on playing I don't know like the saxophone and then you got like this person that like grew up on the streets and yes. like knows like <laughs> in the ins and outs of how to play the saxophone he speaks to the people <laughs> you gotta
0: always have that yeah I never thought about Adam as being like you know, I guess the intention of the character is to be sort of to throw you off. It's like, oh, this kind of like basically guy who lives in a shack in the middle of nowhere is like a five star chef or whatever. Wait, we already, we talked about this on a something else. I don't remember how many stars you can get. Uh, Michelin's, I think you can only get three or something, whatever. I'm pretty sure it's three, right? Right. (laughs) I think so. Anyway, the idea of Adam as being like uh, it kind of throws you off, catches you by surprise that he is like an amazing cook when he's basically Bigfoot or like, you know, a homeless guy. But today that's kind of the look in a way. Like uh, I think um, Ben said sort of like lumberjack-esque, you know, roughneck chefs. I'm just imagining like those barbecue chef, those like barbecue cooks, chefs, I don't know, what you would call them with like the, you know, neck tattoos and just like yeah super super trendy i guess but also (laughs) kind of rough and tumble yeah
2: those are always i don't know they're they're very funny to me there's like those ideas of um especially when it's like
0: branded like that it's like like you were saying like the bad boy of architecture like the way they (laughs) they get like the front page (laughs) of a magazine or something yeah
2: yeah he's like oh he's uh, tearing up the foundation he's making it his own but Yeah, anyway, Ben talks about social media censorship, how that's kind of relevant, and I I guess he like, I don't think he intentionally meant to do this, but he kind of ties it in later by talking about dinner parties and how he's not Mm -hmm. really being invited to them, or at least he perceives that he's not being invited because he thinks that like maybe they've moved on to the digital landscape and all that. So like, that is kind of an interesting thought right there, where he's talking about the social media censorship, but also talking about how it's also opening new doors.
0: I never thought about the idea that the dinner party has gone away and what has filled its place is Instagram sharing your, you know, your photos of like the food you get at restaurants and things like that. And that in a way is a, um, virtual party, I guess. Uh, but, um, no, it's not that you like, I like, I like that Ben was saying, like, maybe I'm just not invited to these anymore. <laughs> Don't worry. If I get a, if I get a dinner party going, you know, Ben, you'll be, you'll be first on my list, but I think they're still around. I think we can still bring it back. I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. Ben, we gotta, um, we gotta cook something up. <laughs>
2: oh, um, Ben talks about, uh, talking directly or like staying on access when talking to a microphone. I thought Chris was doing an oak like a standard technique. Is Chris not is Chris not talking to the microphone well?
0: I need to look at that scene again, but surely, Charles, you've seen scenes where Chris is um, you know, on K-Bear and he's kind of like not speaking directly, or they frame you know, obviously it's a it's not real. This is a show. So they frame, <laughs> they frame the microphone to where it looks good and position the actor's face to where it looks good. But yeah, he's sometimes, I don't know exactly what Ben, what scene Ben is talking about, but it sounds about right. Because sometimes there are scenes where the mic's like really far away or Chris is like facing it. I can't do it right now to show you, Charles, because I don't want to like go off axis myself. But
2: I always thought he was doing that as like part of his plan, though. Like he wants the listeners to hear that he's far away from the mic while he's reaching for something. It makes it more mm, like dynamic. That's
0: kind of cool too. That's a cool idea. Cause it's like, Oh, we're live. I'm going to like, I'm going to reach over for doing. this. I don't think he'd, well, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what, I don't know what the scene is. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at the, at the clips, but uh, there's also a lot of moments when Chris is like handling the microphone with his hands, which is like not unheard of. You can get like a shock mount. And I think that microphone he has, has like sort of a built-in shock mount in a way, but probably still not the best idea to like grab the microphone with your hands. (laughs) Um, but you know, dramatic effect and it it looks really cool. I always wondered if that microphone was even ever plugged in, like in some episodes, do they, like, does that microphone work? Like they could record with it, I guess, um, when he's doing his K-Bear, uh, presentations, monologues. Oh,
2: that would be really neat. Yeah. But I feel very impractical because maybe it's not, I, I don't know what the acoustics are in that room.
0: Yeah. And it's like, cause it's a set, uh, but it, yeah, who knows the acoustics, but, but also like, it just might not be the right sound mixed with the other microphones. But uh, yeah, of course um, leave it to Ben to, to notice that for sure. Definitely the microphone <laughs> technique. I just have a few little quotes I pulled from his um, his commentary. There, Ben said, uh, "Again, we get we get a lot of guests who compare the show to feeling like Twin Peaks. Um, both of the shows ran pretty much concurrently. I think Twin Peaks ended before Northern Exposure ended, but." Um, yeah, there's, a, there's definitely like that time capsule of that period that kind of seeps through and they're both like, you know, Pacific Northwest. But uh, I like what Ben said. He said, it's got a warm, fuzzy maple syrup drunk feeling. Very cozy. <laughs> and I think that's true. The show is very cozy to watch.
2: Yeah, uh, he talks about the idiom of God is in the details and ordinarily you would hear the devil is in the details. Uh, It's one of those things where it can go both ways depending on how you want the circumstance to be framed. So you would say the devil is in the details when you mean that mistakes are usually made in the small details of a project. So, you know, it's a caution to pay attention and to avoid failure. But... If you say God is in the details, it usually means that attention is paid to small things that has big rewards, or that details are important. So they both have the similar theme of saying like details are very important. But one is like obviously yeah you know, it's going toward the devil, and the other one's going toward God. Yeah. So it's always the context of how you're using it.
0: Yeah, I think that quote went right past me. I didn't really, um, it didn't really stop me up. But that, yeah, I think the 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 phrase that I hear more often is the devil's in the details. But yeah, as you said, I could see it. Just like frame it however you want to um, to use the expression. I also like that Ben said, uh, this is just a little note that I pulled from, from his commentary. He says, it wasn't too, not too heavy, not too light, which is true. Like, it's not just like a silly comedy. It is thought provoking. And this show is about some, or this episode is about some very serious uh, topics, but it doesn't feel, ever feel too heavy because they can joke around with it while still... Sort of like thought provokingly analyzing it or playing with these ideas, uh, without it getting a little too yeah. It's about the sky committing suicide, um, but you know it's it doesn't ever lean too dark, more respectful, I guess.
2: Yeah, exploring a whole lot of avenues right here, trying to thread the fine needle. <laughs> <laughs> And for last, Ben talks about the experience of going to med school, how that was something that it was a place that he didn't want to be, but he was incredibly glad that he went through the experience because that taught him the lesson that, you know, even though you put a lot of energy into something, it doesn't mean that you have to stick with it, which is always a tough pill to swallow. I feel like even though you read about that lesson in all forms of media, like books, movies, plays, I mean, it's a common lesson to learn. It's very difficult to conceptualize it and apply it in your life because yeah. it's the factor of effort and time and no one likes having their efforts be wasted in that regard. It's very hard to reframe uh, your mindset to be like, there's no such thing as wasted effort when the you know you just failed. Yeah It's very difficult to do that. It takes time for you to step away and realize like in Ben's case, he's saying like, all right, you know, it's, it's fine that you failed. It's okay. You can still commit a lot to something, but it doesn't mean you have to commit your all. You still have other things to go to.
0: Yeah. I think his sort of closing sentiment there was like, you never, you're never like stuck with something. You can, you can always adapt. And, uh, if you find that you're feeling stuck or, you know, you're worried about all this wasted amount of time, exactly what you said, Charles, it's like, you know, there's no such thing as wasted effort if we have that mindset. And I think it's true. Ben says himself that he was happy that he went through the experience despite it being, you know, you know, it's just like not a good place for him uh, met to going into med school. I actually didn't know, or I guess I had forgotten if, if he had told me that he, you know, originally, I'm, I think we had talked about like when he, where he you know, originally went to college and like what his majors were. I guess I forgot this, but yeah, just goes to show like that was at one point in his life. Now, I think if, if you met Ben, uh, most people would, would never have guessed, you know, that he <laughs> had pursued uh, med school, you know, before.
2: I feel like that's something that like we, as a people put a lot of shame in whenever you can't yeah. tough it out of a law school or med school
3: mm-hmm. right there.
2: Um, One thing that I found really interesting, I I didn't know about this. I I read about it a couple of days ago. There were people that passed law school, like they graduated and they got their JD, but they didn't pass the bar. Some states are really difficult in their bar. I think California is one of them. And what they do instead is that they teach law. So like they never get their their, their license. They never pass the bar. Mm. They just get the JD and then start teaching. And I was like i didn't realize that you could even do that i thought it was very interesting yeah. on that aspect and i don't think that's like a i mean i don't think that that's like indicative of your skill particularly in california because i heard that like <laughs> you they, they test you on all manners of things and it's never the same so it's almost luck based so like you could be really great but then like just pull the short straw like two or three times and be like you know i, I just just couldn't answer
0: that oh wow yeah well, that was Ben's thoughts on the episode. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to watch the episode, prepare your thoughts, and send us uh, send us your recording on such short notice. Uh, and yeah, it's great to great to hear your thoughts on this episode. Well, Charles, next episode is gonna be uh, after our little short break. We're taking a hiatus. We usually take a short little break every eight episodes, and uh, when we get back, Charles, we're gonna be talking about a pretty big episode it's called una volta in l'inverno so do you have any guesses on that title what what could this next episode be about
2: that's latin right i think it's like uh, i italian? think it's italian
0: so romance language I don't know any of those words. <laughs> Do you want me to tra- like, let me see. Where it, yeah, you're trying. I'm trying the to the think, like means. I'm yeah, like, think what like means. I think is- it's. I think it means once upon a time in winter, roughly, or like one time uh, in really? winter. I think.
2: Oh. Uh, okay. Well. Uh, man, I got nothing. I, I guess this is going to be about. Um, let's just make it up at this point all right let's (laughs) just say that they get into like a dream within a dream sequence it's going to be really wacky it's going to be a bunch (laughs) of shenanigans i mean with a title like that you already doesn't sound like an ordinary episode so let's just say there's going to be a lot of hijinks going on
0: yeah i like it i mean sounds very northern exposure well um charles i'll see you then
2: all right i'll see you then Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Ben for being our guest analyst. If you like the write-in, you can reach us at Podcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.